Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation about how art affects our brains with Susan Mag Salmon, Founder and Executive Director of International Arts and Mind Lab, Ivy Ross, VP of Design for Hardware at Google, Diana Seville, Co-Founder and CCO of BrainMind, and Judy Tawalastiwa, visual artist, writer, and teacher. Hi, Mark Wilson, senior writer with Fast Company. And for the past decade, I've written a lot about design and specifically uh, how the end goal of design you know, should be simplicity and intuitiveness. But over the past few years, I've started to doubt that thesis a bit. And in fact, I've wondered if it's the way products make us feel that should be the most important rubric. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure to sit down with the Twitter design team. Um, I was a fly on the wall as they were working on their app. They were reconsidering what the sound should be. And, you know, they brought up all sorts of interesting ideas. You know, what sounds the most like the Twitter brand? What type of music would be most in line with that? And then they turned to me and they asked, well, what do you think our app should sound like? Uh, and it took me a minute. I, I started thinking, was not really prepared for the question at the moment. Um, but then I thought about, well, how does Twitter make me feel? And I don't know about you, but when I'm on Twitter, my pulse kind of raises. I get pretty tense. Um, I prepare for bad news, potentially a fight. And, you know, my comment was, well, could you make a notification sound that would sort of calm me down, that would make me more joyous before I went into Twitter, because perhaps I would be a better citizen on Twitter because of it. Uh, we'll see what they do. But, you know, today's panel is really about this topic and, you know, our increasing awareness that stimuli in our world, pretty much everything, colors, textures, sounds, they affect our mental well-being and they affect the way we view the world. So we've assembled a complete panel to talk about this topic of neuroaesthetics. Starting off, we have Susan Mag Salmon. She is a social scientist and the founder of the International Arts and Mind Lab at John Hopkins, which investigates the intersection of uh, the brain and human behavior with a focus on well-being. Next, we have Diana Seville. She is the co-founder and CCO of BrainMind, an organization that brings together researchers, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and academic institutions to try to accelerate advancements within neuroscience. Uh, then we have Judy uh, Tualtstiwa. She's an artist, a writer, a teacher uh, who has worked in almost every medium there is. Uh, she's definitely a specialist within glass, and she has uh, you know, pieces in museums globally. And finally, we have Ivy Ross. She's the VP of hardware at Google. Um, she might not say it, but I think she's largely responsible for the brilliant design turnaround of their product team. Um, and in a past life, you know, she's actually a celebrated jewelry artist herself with, with many pieces in museum collections around the world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Susan, I would like to kick things off with you. Before we get into how, you know, how neuroscience affects product design and spaces, I want to I get a nice firm grounding on, you know, what are neuroaesthetics? Uh, what is sort of the state of the art in research today? Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think it is probably the most important conversation we're having today um, in this idea of marrying science and the arts. Um, you know, our fascination with the brain and how the arts can profoundly change us is not new, but we know so much more. Um, I, I often talk about the definition of neuroaesthetics as 
this idea of how the brain, body, and behavior change on arts and aesthetic experiences. And so what does that mean? You know, how are we showing up um, in different parts of our lives? And that, and that could be around physical health or mental health, or even thinking um, more broadly and deeply around flourishing and thriving. And so, you know, we, we want to feel good, but we also want to excel. And what's extraordinary is that aesthetic experiences, and by that I mean how we bring the world into our bodies through our senses, touch, you mentioned taste, smell, um, this idea of vision. Um, how do these amazing experiences, which are actually passively active in us happening all the time, how do they change our moods? How do they help us regulate um, physiology? Um, how do they help us grow and change and learn? And so neuroesthetics really is about answering those questions, um, You know, figuring out what is it that you're trying to solve for? So it's quite uh, uh, quite literally solution science and then using how we're wired to be able to do that. Let me give a counter question here, which is, you know, recently I, I was covering the idea of nature and, and and there's research around this idea of a nature pill. And you go outside for 15 or 30 minutes, uh, you know, we can see that cortisol levels drop in the human body. Uh, it's really amazing. It's, it's basically, you know, free and easy self-care. Um, is that an example of neuroesthetics? Is like the greenery and all that, would that be considered within that pile? Sure. I mean, nature is the ultimate aesthetic experience, right? And we come, we are born in nature. You know, we look at our evolution. We come out of the natural world. Coming inside into human-built environments is really a new concept. So it makes perfect sense that biophilia and the sort of understanding around light and smell and green and nature and grounding um, would have very strong physiological effects. And I think what you're pointing to um, is also interesting because it's only been in the last um, 20 plus years that we've been able to non-invasively look inside the brain and really see what's happening. You know, we can do that to understand that biomarkers mentioning cortisol, um, sort of uh, eye tracking technology, some of the really amazing AI that's happening right now, virtual reality is allowing us to understand our physiology and psychology in ways that we haven't before. So, you know, prior to the technology innovations, we intuited, intuitively known artists have always been there first, healers have always understood it, but we're able to now marry this idea of science to intuition, to artistry, to this, this knowing. Um, and I think that gives us a great advantage to think about problem solving, dose and dosage, um, how we think about environments um, or programs or art activities. Um, as practice, as practice to really enhance our enhance our our lives. Can you give me a few examples of of sort of neuroesthetic principles we know and are are sort of generally agreed upon? And then, what is sort of the unknown? Like, where are the lines where our knowledge is blurred at this moment in time? Well, let me start with the second part because um, every neuroscientist you know is going to tell you that we know very little bit about the brain, right? And mm -hmm. and let's just take that as a baseline. The brain is an enormously complicated organ. Um, but we, we do know some things. We know some things around the structure of the brain, right? We know about sort of where th we think things are happening in different parts of the brain. Um, we know a lot about neuroplasticity, um, a lot more to know. Um, we know a lot about memory, a lot more to know. Uh, when you talk, when you think about, um, basic science and, and neuroscience in particular, um, and you tie that back to um, 
how that may inform neuroaesthetics or understanding arts and aesthetic experiences. There are some things that I think we do know. Um, we understand how these sensory systems are engaged um, in different art forms. And interestingly, we know that music engages multiple systems. So when we're engaged in music, we know that we are um, engaging the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, the prefrontal cortex. We know that there are some limbic, very strong limbic responses to that. When we're dancing, you know, we're engaging the cerebellum um, motor cortex. You know, we, we know a lot about what is happening at a physiological level. We also know through um, looking at different um, disease states, what types of art experiences seem to be clinically relevant. So we know that Parkinson's in dance turn, turns out helps to um, regulate gait. We know that um, uh, we know uh, empirically more information about the role of music in um, lowering cortisol, frustration, changing mood and even altering um, quality of life for people with different types of dementia. Um, we know that um, you don't have to be good at an art form in order to have great benefits to um, lowering cortisol, for example, or increasing oxytocin or having a dopamine hit um, from, a, from, reward, from a rewarding experience. Um, in the design area, which I think is a really interesting area for us to talk about today, you mentioned biophilia. We know a lot about how nature and all the different aspects, um, sensory aspects of nature, change our focus, help to calm us, even increase creativity and innovation. Um, we know things around space. So curved spaces, um, especially curved spaces behind us, turn out to be really important um, for protection and for safety. Um, there's been a lot of work because of COVID and looking at space related to uh, uh, renewal and uh, a restoration. Um, we also have been looking more deeply at the, the way that space can be helpful in um, providing creativity and um, more collaboration. Um, so those are just a couple of things that, that we know. Um, the empirical work has been um, really important, but the applied neuroaesthetics and applying this work to specific areas is, 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 is very robust and continuing to grow. I imagine it, it's brain research is hard because, you know, any stimulus affects so much of the brain, right? So I, I imagine that when you're, when you're testing these experiences or products or anything like that, it probably becomes very hard to sort of isolate those variables and, and figure out which aspects do affect people and which don't. Science is a reductionist approach. Um, and I think when you're thinking about the arts, we really need new frameworks and ways to study the arts that are much more generative. Um, you know, what I've been seeing, and we've been working very closely with the NIH and the NEA, um, also the World Health Organization um, have been working um, around uh, these issues of how do you really study this work and what is rigorous research in the arts. And, you know, there's certainly a standard of practice in all of the, all of these fields, but the, re the need for interdisciplinary, um, highly um, collaborative um, team science here is essential because, you know, you're looking at anthropology, anthropology, you're looking at culture, sociology, you're also looking at maybe public health, um, culture. Um, and then you're also looking at some of these neurobiological pathways. Um, I don't think this is ever going to be a match match. We're going to know more about the brain and how the brain responds on art and aesthetic experiences, but genetics, life experiences, conditioning, all those things are really important. Um, and I always like to say, you know, in, in psychiatry, 
Um, there are a lot of drugs that are have been developed that are on the market um, that we know are effective, but we don't necessarily know what the neural mechanisms are for why they work. And so I think we have to be careful that when we're looking at something like arts and aesthetic experiences as a field, as something that we may well prescribe and other countries do prescribe arts and aesthetic experiences, we need to figure out what the bar is and what the rules are and what the what the standards of practice are. And that's happening. That's happening in the United States. And it's also happening around the world. Before we move on, I, I, this does sound related to, to your work on the, the New Arts Blueprint at the Aspen Institute. And I'm curious, what is going on there? What are, what are you trying to do uh, with that work? That's a really, really exciting project. Um, over the last two years, um, our lab has partnered with the Aspen Institute and literally hundreds of organizations and thousands of people around the world to really create a um, roadmap on lifting this field of neuroaesthetics or what we call neuroarts for sort of a, a shortcut um, uh, with standards and research and priorities, was thinking very carefully about the integration of way the way practitioners come to this. So, you know, if you think about that, there are many different ways people that practice using the arts, whether that's psychology, creative arts therapists, arts and health folks, PT, OT, um, um, corporations that are looking at design, um, architects. We're looking at research, practice, policy, and funding, um, and then pulling that together to really create an ecosystem on how you build the field over the next 10 years. So the release of that blueprint, which is really kind of getting started, it's December 1st, um, and we're really excited about that. And folks can go to the NeuroArts Blueprint uh, website and learn more about attending that. And there'll be a number of things that you know come out after that that will really start to build it out. It's interesting because it almost sounds like this field is nascent the way you talk about it now. But in fact, you know, you are working on, you know, people are working on products around this topic. I think it's really interesting, Susan, you know, you collaborated in Ivy. I think this is a great time to loop you in. Um, you collaborated on a, a product for Milan that Google produced. It was an experience, had industrial design product, it had uh, a, a sort of environmental product in which, you know, Google was investigating you know, how, how something could make you feel and the impact on your physiology. Uh, I want to toss this over to Ivy to, to talk about that project and, you know, how that worked out and, and, and what you learned from it. It's, it's, it's really something. Thank you, Mark. Mm -hmm. Great to be here. Um, yeah, Susan and I collaborated as well as with an architect, Suchi Reddy, and at the Milan Design Fair, where, you know, Google's mission is to show up as a thought leader and share with the world things that inspire the design studio. And so it was, I think, the first time that neuroesthetics, you know, the public was able to experience what that really means. And so we developed just for, for Milan, we're not selling it, but a band that would um, take certain uh, input from your body in terms of galvanic skin response, heart rate, etc. And we created three different uh, spaces that were based on neuroesthetic principles, each with its own. Uh, we, we created a grid of you know sound, scent, texture, color. Um, what was that environment going to do for all of your senses? And made sure that each of these three rooms were extremely different, designed to uh, create different responses, physiological responses. And what was great is we told everyone. No phones, no talking. We we put about, I think it was um, 10 people through the room at each time. We told them, 
touch the textures, smell the art, just, just be. And it was called a space for being because we wanted people to just be in those spaces and let their body feel the effects. And then in between each room, we had um, what I call a palate cleanser. It was a room that was just almost soundproof foam, which stripped all of those aesthetics <laughs> from you to cleanse you before you walked into the next environment. Um, at the end of the experience, uh, we uh, had what I would call the band tenders, not the bartenders, but they would take the band off of you, place it in a, a of course, beautifully designed tray that would offload all the data. And of course, we showed that we were deleting your data. But what we were doing mm -hmm. is we created a um, algorithm that took all the information from how your body responded in each of these three different environments and um, served up almost this beautiful ink uh, painting that used color and um, pattern to show you where your body was calm and where it was reacting. And the goal was we ultimately delivered to each person the visual of the room at which their body was most at ease. We wanted to really prove that your body is feeling all the time and your cognitive mind may walk into a space and go, oh, I love it, you know, because it's your favorite color or because it looks like something you saw in a magazine. But your body is really not feeling comfortable in the room. And in fact, a different room is where your physiology and your, your um, feel most at ease, less stress. So I remember we said this will be a success if at least half the people are surprised by their response, because mm -hmm. most people don't understand that their body's feeling all the time and it could feel differently than what you're perceiving. And um, it was great because Susan was there at the end of the experience, you know, when people would come out and they loved the little handout, which was the image plus a list of everything in that room that had um, put their body into this beautiful, relaxed state. So what colors, what scents, uh, what textures, what et cetera. And sure enough. So wait, so did, sorry, did people respond differently then to different rooms, essentially? Like, it sounds like there was not one optimal room for everyone. Absolutely. The whole point is it's really unique to you. You know, as Susan had re referenced, some of this even has to do with your cultural uh, background and history will affect mm -hmm. how your body feels in from one environment to another. So yes, people love the path of least resistance, which is just give me the formula. And the whole point, you know, I think it's why we have to move toward personalized medicine is we are each unique beings. And so what's what we hold is all of that memory, history. Um, and so it was different for different folks. It was really, there wasn't one room even that came up as you know, the, there was no winner. The winner was really, you know, this was being done for us to give people a mirror back to themselves, you know, a chance to uh, reflect on the fact that their body is feeling and that we have agency over the environments we create to affect our bodies. We're not victims here. You know, we can really find the arc, the, the space the textures, the colors that make us feel our best and, and relaxed. So there was a, a waiting line for three hours to get in, which made me very nervous. It was like, oh my God, is this a, you know, a movie that when people come out, they're like, oh, that was not worth waiting for. But that was, but that was not the case. Thank God. I mean, people really, I mean, I brought great joy to the whole team. Um, 
and to Susan and, and team and everyone that worked on it to see people's uh, revelation and surprise and really wanting to understand and learn more. I think it was a big aha for, for they, they said that they were changed, that they would never see their world again in the same way. And for us, Ivy, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the most rewarding is that they, they felt different. They saw the world in a different way. And I think that's a gift. Yep. We weren't trying to sell a, pro a product. We were just trying to <laughs> give information and show the, share with the public the way we at Google Design understand things to be, you know, um, through partnering with Susan and just intuitively, I think designers understand uh, the effect that all of these things have on us. But it's been great that Susan um, and neuroscience is now proving it. <laughs> So that it's not just something that those of us, you know, that in, have that intuition know, but science can really validate it. And that's what we wanted to bring to the surface. And um, we got a great reaction. This was obviously outward facing. Uh, you know, Google's making a statement about uh, products, environments to the public. Um, but but did any of that reflect back? And and you, you mentioned this isn't for sale. I think I said it a few years ago to you. Like I would buy this though. Like this is like the one. This is like the one gadget I want is something that tells me whether or not I'm happy in, in like various environments. Who knows? Maybe over time. I mean, I think there's a um, a fine line. I think information is good, right? Data of of being able to reflect back to us things that we don't know about ourselves, especially if it's going on internally. And there are a lot of I think the future is very much about sense uh, sensors in general, and how can these sensors be helpful uh, to Im improve our lives? Um, but no, it just supported the way that we've been thinking about even you know physical products. How important it is to consider how they feel, not just not just what they do or um, making making sure that they're beautiful, but you know what does it do when you pick up something, when you look at it, when when you have that object sitting around. So we've always been very focused on that. And in fact, we're even researching our products using this um, emotional impression kit, which is when we design things now, we, we talk about what do we want the consumer to feel when they see this? Um, and then the, the designers kind of put down words that the almost the design intent and when we bring it to consumer research it's such joy when you know you put down a phone or a speaker in front of a consumer and they go oh my god that makes me happy you know unprompted they use you know success is if the words that people use match the intention that the creator or the designer had so it's like this new idea around a a um, tool impression kit that we look to make sure there's a there's a match and that's success. So we're just paying more attention and I'm thrilled, you know, now people are using the word. I'm thrilled to hear the Twitter story. I'm I, you know, I'm thrilled that people are using, you know, talking about which I've been doing for a while now, design feeling versus design thinking. Because we are an entire mind body and we have to consider the entire uh, connection between the mind and body. And I think that's what we're moving toward as we enter these multidimensional worlds is understanding that a lot better.
I also think it's interesting that with your industrial design team works in a beautiful space. I've been lucky enough to visit. Um, you, you actually brought in Judy uh, as an artist to help work with your designers. And so, you know, I would love to hear more about that experience, why you did it. Judy, I would love to hear about, you know, what you're trying to bring to designers when you when you come into a corporate space like that um, and everything along those lines. Yeah. So thank you. Yes. In our space, I like to walk, walk our talk. So, of course, you know, knowing that space affects your physiology and um, your everything, um, we were very intentional about the space that we designed for the design team. Within that, I always like to bring in outside um, speakers, inspirational folks. But this time, I, Judy, I brought her in to work with the designers, those who were interested with clay, because she does an amazing exercise. I thought it was really important you know, we all work on computers now, we design on computers, but having started as a craftsman, um, the hand-mind connection, which Judy can talk more about, is so critical. I mean, I think I've been successful doing what I've been doing in part because I started as a craftsman and, and made those neural connections between my mind and my hand and then um, moved into the design field. But if I hadn't had that um, hands-on experience, I think things might have been different. So I wanted the designers to get off the computer and just get their hands dirty and start to work with the clay and let their unconscious, you know, right and left hand, as Judy says, it's the one thing that you have to do with your right and left hand, um, kick in. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about that. But the beauty, and I had no expectation, right? I think play is about zero expectation, which I think these designers were working so hard against deadlines and there's always expectations that I think creativity uh, comes when you're able to play, which means having no expectations and seeing what comes out of it. What was great is I think two days later, and I sent Judy a picture of this because one of my young designers said, oh my God, Ivy, after that clay workshop, I felt compelled to go to our model shop and start to carve the form I wanted for the speaker out of wood before I even went to the computer to put it into our surfacing um, software. So I was so thrilled with that because um, there's no substitute for by carving that form first, there's going to be, it's going to look different than if he had just entered it in the computer. So I think, you know, I view my job as an orchestra conductor and knowing all my instruments and when, when is the time to bring in drums and when's the time where the team needs to just um, have a new experience. And so Judy's been someone I've worked with throughout the companies I've been with when it feels time to have some hands-on experience. So I'll turn it over to you, Judy, maybe to talk a little bit about that experience or what you do. Hands-on is the perfect way to turn it over because it really is about these. Um, it is so powerful to work with your designers. They're from all over the world. They're passionate about their work. And to watch their hands, whenever I give a workshop, I. My attention is on people's hands. There's a special intelligence that we carry in these hands. I don't think we wouldn't have this brain without these hands, without that simple opposable thumb and these hands that can do such incredible work. They're constantly feeding the world back to us. And as you were speaking, as everybody's speaking, I kept thinking, first I was thinking about the Twitter thing and it's like the obvious, why not just some beautiful bird song to put us back in ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> instead of the idea of Twitter, 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 you know, that you actually just... They, they may or may not have investigated that. Uh, yes, I, I suspect so. But just some, you know, living here and listening to the birds each morning, it's like there's a reconnection that Susan was talking about. It, everything that you've talked about, Ivy and Susan, and you, Mark, and I'm sure Diana, is so resonant. I think about the power of the image to heal, the power of our hands to connect us to our heart, our eyes, and our mind. And our eyes, how did these even develop? I remember discussing with a physicist up at Los Alamos, and that's what he's been studying. He was so intrigued. How did these develop to see color? So you think about the magnificence of this body, and you talked about how important the body experience was in in Milan. Um, so when people work with clay, they use both hands equally. And it's the only substance that I know, a material substance, finger paints, one hand still stays dominant. But with clay, if you're right-handed, the left-handed can do as fine work as the right hand. It often takes over. And I think that if people kept a bag of clay in their desk and worked with it just for a few minutes each morning, that it would set their day in a very, very different way. They'd be in touch with themselves in a different way. The exercise that Ivy's talking about, I've worked with from second graders all the way to 90-year-olds over the years. Uh, as artists in residence at colleges. I've used it over and over and it came out of a painting, a series of paintings I did in the 1980s, in which I decided I needed to take away the end product in order to discover what process truly was. So I stretched a six by four foot canvas, used acrylic paint, and, and simply began painting, knowing that the final color of that canvas would be white. And that no matter how much I loved a painting, it would never exist as a painting, but only as a memory. So I photographed the paintings as they evolved from each other. So usually in art, the photograph is not the artifact, except for NFT, but it's, it hasn't been the artifact. Um, it is a reproduction of the actual thing. In this case, the photograph was to be the artifact that would then teach me about process. And of course, then I put in 36, a roll of 36, because I had a, we didn't have digital cameras then. So by the time I got the 36 developed, I had already forgotten what I had done. And it was such a profound learning process. I ended up with a hundred photographs for a white painting in 1985, a black painting in 1986, and a red painting in 1987. And then when I started working with children, I thought, how do you do this exercise to teach them that there are no mistakes, there's incredible discovery through art? And I, I wasn't in a school where you could buy uh, acrylic for everybody and canvases. So I thought, well, the clay, and let the clay keep changing. And the kids would work for maybe an hour it was amazing how deeply they would move into it. And I had them write down what the clay became instead of photographing it. And then we would make stories from those words that came from the unconscious. When, when, when you were talking earlier, Ivy and Susan, about how 
Our bodies are picking up everything around us. The unconscious is always there also. And when we're rushing, we, we can't see it. We can't experience it. And these children would write the most amazing stories. Everybody who does this, the stories surprise them, just like, like going through the rooms. It's like, I wrote that? Mm-hmm. And they would play with the words, even people who were afraid of, of writing stories. They would play with the words the same way they would play with the clay. And that's an exercise that I did at Google. And it was like, it was so, everybody went so deep. It was like being in the studio for a day. Well, it's breaking the mold, right? And I think that's really important. We're all so um, in a groove. And when you can get out of that um, easily, and the arts allow you to do that, right? You then can really be whole and authentic in a way that you don't show up for sometimes. And it, it creates incredible safety to do that. So you don't even think about, about that. There's such safety in using both hands with this clay, finding language, the textures. I mean, text and texture come from texaray, which means to weave. And mm-hmm. finding those textures in yourself. And, and it's profound. It's, it's like when people finish that, it's like le- leaving the rooms and saying, oh, that's, I didn't realize that was in me. It's very, very exciting and wonderful, wonderful work to do. I think it, I think it's rare that, you know, in arts, there's sort of no failure, right? But in design, there are definitely failures <laughs> to, your, to your point. So, so to merge those two things is, is clearly complicated and creating spaces to allow sort of designers to be artists, perhaps. Uh, feels like important in, in this particular exploration. I think so. My assumption is that everybody has this in them and can touch into them. And designers, of course, most designers I know are artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that they've taken that and they've focused it in, in, into, into design. But I have never met a person who cannot do art if given the place to be able to do it. And that goes to what Susan said. I mean, it is, Federico Fellini said, art is the dream activity of mankind. So guess what? We all, we all dream and we all dream that. And it's powerful to create very, very simple exercises that let people go into great complexity within themselves and to feel how profound it is. You know, I think design is, um, really creating art, but within boundaries. Yeah. So Good. it's really important because we, w- as designers, we work within the boundaries of the constraints of price or function or size. And so, but it's really creating art within those boundaries. And the most creative designers figure out how to get joy out of working within those constraints. Because when you succeed and are, you know, and feel great about the end result, you can it's incredibly um, rewarding. You know, I think an, an artist puts a piece of their soul on a pedestal and hopes that someone comes by and resonates. A designer designs into constraints and hopes to affect millions of people. And so I think um, that's the joy I know I've gotten out of being both in my life. And I think it's really important to keep the, um, that muscle exercised in terms of in its fullness of art, 
expression so that then you can also find joy in the constraints. I think to add to that, you know, you talk about designers and artists, but there's also, um, you know, using art for trauma or using it to um, express something in science. Like it shows up everywhere. I think we've we've created these myth mythologies around what art and who an artist is and isn't and what who's creative and who's innovative. And, you know, if we really opened this up and made visible this skill set in multiple disciplines and fields, I think we would be um, even more productive and more innovative. So I think there's a, you know, I think you can lift this up to many, many applications. I mean, I, th I think that's, uh, you know, obviously right now we're in a very academic and, and sort of theoretical space to some extent. And, uh, you know, something I was talking about with Diana the other day was that, you know, neuroaesthetics might seem like this very future forward idea, but in fact, we have hit products right now that are sort of, you know, using these principles and leveraging them. And, and Diana, I would love for you to, to get into that a little bit. Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on this panel. And it's, it's been so inspiring to hear about the work that Ivy has done with Susan and with Judy. And yes, what, what I'm really interested in and, and what BrainMind is focused on is how do emerging fields like neuroaesthetics, neuroarts, get translated out of the lab, out of science, out of academia, and into society where uh, these insights can really benefit people. So we're really interested as an ecosystem in advancing this type of research in activating it, in applying it in a, the form of products and services that can profoundly help other people. And the way we do that is we, we sort of put people together that wouldn't normally meet each other. So an academic, a PI in a lab, not every day are they going to be having a conversation with a tech entrepreneur or an investor or a philanthropist. And these are the people that we bring to this ecosystem. So with NeuroArts, we do see this as one of these nascent areas uh, in terms of application, but there are exciting applications out there. You were mentioning, Susan, about how music in the brain is this new area of excitement because we're starting to understand using computational methods how to predict response to different types of music. And now companies like Spiritune, like Waypass, like Focus at Will, they're coming together to build playlists that are really dramatically different. They're designed to elicit different brain states, do things like uh, sustain our focus over, over time. Waypass is building technology to elicit psychedelic responses without any drugs involved, and also as an adjunct or, or accompaniment to psychedelic therapy. And, you know, actually in, in the realm of psychedelics, there are therapeutics companies that are now looking at the potential to even patent things, you know, things around the aesthetic environment of set and setting with psychedelic therapy, things like the music and the colors on the walls. This is controversial as, a, as an act, but it's, it really shows the value of, of what this means and how it benefits others. And even, even the wave of sort of wellness and meditation apps and things like that we've seen are to some extent on this gradient of neuroaesthetics. Yeah, so I was speaking with Susan about this, how if you look at the trend, it's really following a similar trajectory. Neuroarts is in an earlier stage, but with mindfulness and meditation, what you saw uh, over the last few decades is this emergence of study after study showing the cognitive benefits of mindfulness and meditation, the health benefits. And then now we're starting to see the apps that we're seeing calm, 
We're seeing Headspace. Calm was last valued at $2 billion. There are millions and millions of users of these meditation apps. They're profoundly changing the way people live their lives. And so clearly you can see that the, the way is actually paved a little bit more for neural arts and its applications in mental health. We see there's a growing, you know, rapidly growing demand for mental health and wellness products and services. There's less stigma than there's ever been about pursuing treatments and training around supporting mental health. So it's it's really quite an exciting time. And you know, there I was thinking about this idea of what's out there already. And you know, it, of course, in the design world, uh, people have been thinking about how the aesthetic experience impacts the consumer. And so you see that in examples like um, every fast food logo that you've ever seen, um, it uses these colors, red and yellow. Why do they use those colors, right? Red elicits this uh, hunger, this, this impulsiveness in people that's, that's been studied, that's true. And yellow elicits a sense of comfort. And so you combine these things, but what, you know, what if you could optimize this? And scientists are doing this now, they're using machine learning, they're using neuroimaging, they're combining them and looking at real-time neurofeedback. And instead of selling a burger with this kind of insights, imagine how it could transform how you design your office space how you design your child's bedroom, how the classroom is set up. And so the implications are really exciting. Uh, and you know, there are companies even now that uh, design firms that will come and redesign a space for you based on biophilic principles. And so this is, this is just the beginning and there's a, there's a lot of growth to be done and we're really excited to be a part of a team that's, that's looking at this and, and amplifying and bringing it to wider audiences. I'll say my concern as, as a journalist is only that uh, I feel like validating all of these things is so challenging. You know, I, I recently spoke with MIT was developing an app called The Guardians, and, and the app uses cognitive behavioral therapy to, to get you to do things you love, um, to, which will, you know, in turn make you happier and more fulfilled. Uh, they've proven it works. And, and they've had to do all of these, you know, very restrictive app updates to ensure they do that. But they're, you know, one tiny drop in a huge pond of apps that actually don't have any efficacy. And so that's, I think that's the, that's the twist I, I'm concerned about. I think that's true in all fields, new fields where, you know, standards have to be developed, guidelines have to be developed, um, outcome measures, and that's happening in the field of neuroaesthetics for sure. Um, you know, we used to talk about that it's everywhere and I think, you know, everywhere and nowhere in some ways because there hasn't been this coalescing of the field, but as the field comes together and really sort of creates that ecosystem, that will change. And, and I think there's some amazing innovations that aren't evidence-based, but if you looked at them and you could sort of understand what they're about, you would really try, you'd be able to, you'd be able to take that apart and figure out sort of, you know, what's noise and what's signal. And so I just think that's because this is this moment in time, but that, that will change from a consumer's point of view. It's important, you know, like children's educational television was like that years ago where everybody said educational television, everything was educational. Um, and you know, that's, that changed. There's now a digital, um, literacy for that kind of thing. I think there'll be literacy around neuroaesthetics. What is, what it is, what is good, when it's full, what, when do you use something? And, and, um, and I think that's starting to happen already. There's sort of a taxonomy that's being created. Okay. We only have a couple minutes, uh, left, but I do want to toss, uh, toss things over to Judy. Judy, uh, very, very kindly offered to walk our own audience through, um, an artistic exercise. 
And I think it would be a, a great way to close out this panel to keep everyone's minds open um, to the possibilities. So I will, I will toss it to Judy. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. We could go on for hours. This is so interesting. I would love for us all to be in a room together, just talking, staying up all night, sharing <laughs> ideas. Um, so I talked about the hands and also the power of the image to transform us. You know, and this just brings us back to the individuals, to each of us as individuals. And um, I used to do an exercise. Um, I lived in Sonoma County for many years where I raised my kids and did my art. And in the local schools, we had a lot of art programs in California. And one program was we paired a sixth grade class with a group of seniors who were in daycare. And the exercises that we did were just fascinating for everybody. But one that we did was very, very simple. We simply had the children trace the seniors' hands and the seniors trace the children's hands. And then they would tell each other what their hands have done and what they hope their hands will do mm -hmm. in this life. And it created such a profound conversation. And I think this is a time of important intergenerational interaction, really important. So I think back, this was 35 years ago when we did this. So what I would like everybody to do is just take a moment and just look at your hands, these things that we take for granted, that they're gonna do everything that we need done during the day from washing dishes to writing a brilliant sentence, to working on the keyboard, to designing something magnificent, um, on and on and on with these hands of ours. And simply to take a piece of paper and we'll, we'll do, this is to be done as, as we finish and as you be, even maybe um, whoever's watching this is taking notes, just to put your hand down and trace. Choose either the left or the right. It doesn't matter which hand is the most dominant. Or you can do both if you want. And then just start playing with the ideas of what your hands have done and what they'd like to do. And that's a simple cracking of a door. And see what wants to come next after you've done that. See if there's an image. I believe images are so powerful in healing. And see if there's an image that comes up that you want to continue exploring. If there are crayons around the house, take some crayons and start playing with them. And maybe you do this with your kids or your mother or your grandmother or an uncle or your next door neighbor or someone else in the office and just see what begins to come out of that. So that's, 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 that's the exercise. Judy, I need you in my meditation app because I am like so much more relaxed just thinking about, about that whole experience. I don't know if, I, if I'm the only panelist who believes that, but yes, like I feel like my quarters all just dropped. Like, Her voice is very soothing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad to know that I'm good for cortisol. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you to all the panelists for, for talking through this today. I, 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 am, uh, I am sold on you know on the possibilities of, of neuroesthetics within design very excited to see uh what everyone gets back to work to doing thank you so much thank you thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you.